and welcome to Top in Tech. My name is Conan Darcy, I'm your regular host, and I'm a Senior Practice Director at Global Council. This week, it's the latest episode in our monthly In Conversation series with the leading thinkers of global tech policy. And I'm delighted today to welcome John Edwards. John is the UK's Information Commissioner, so in that role, he oversees data protection in the UK and the enforcement of the UK's GDPR. John is also currently the chair of the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum, which brings together the main digital regulators in the UK. And prior to starting at the UK's ICO, John was New Zealand's Privacy Commissioner for the best part of a decade. So we're in safe hands today to talk about all things data protection. John, thanks for joining today's episode. There's four things that I would like to do in the course of the conversation. The first and our starting point would be to get a sense of your priorities as commissioner and to explore this balance between enforcement and facilitating businesses and their access to information about the data protection process. The second is then to get your initial views on the reform of the UK's data protection laws. We have the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill back in Parliament, so great to get your take on where that's headed. The third is just get a sense of the developments recently in the public sector where there have been a number of high-profile issues crop up with regards to privacy and data protection. And then finally, if we have time, just to look at a handful of emerging policy issues linked to new technologies like generative AI. So if that all sounds good, let's start at the start around your priorities. I was reading this morning your keynote speech at the IAPP conference that you gave last week. A few things struck me. One was this phrase of being a more empathetic and open regulator. And when you put that together with the strategy that you and the ICO have devised, the ICO 25 strategy, there's this ambition about saving businesses, and I quote here, more than 100 million pounds through greater certainty and more targeted support. So I started my career in the European Parliament, so I'm very used to EU-Brussels debates around data protection. And the focus there is always enforcement, getting big tech in particular. So if someone from my side of things, from the background I have, but probably some of our European listeners, it might seem a bit surprising some of the emphasis that you've given there where the expected onus would be on a data protection regulator upholding citizens' rights primarily as their purpose rather than saving businesses money. So can you just give us your take on this? Is there a contradiction here? Or... No, th th those things are not in competition. They have to happen hand in hand. I mean, the tagline for the strategy that we've developed here in the last year is that we are here to empower you through information. The you in that is UK businesses. It is UK citizens, people of the United Kingdom who have their own individual access rights to information, who have expectations of government and business as to how their personal data will be used. Um, but businesses are also entitled to release the value of personal data. And the Data Protection Act and the UK GDPR is there to describe how that is done safely. It is not there to prevent it. And I think that there is a perception in some corners of European regulation that these laws are very restrictive and if you put a foot out of line, then you know, you're going to cop fines of hundreds of millions of pounds. Broadly speaking, my regulatory philosophy is 
that I want to humanize this law. We've got to make it relatable to people. We've got to ensure that people understand their rights and are able to enjoy them. We do have to make compliance easy for organizations. I know that. We can scare the pants off them with enormous fines. That's one way of driving compliance. But it's well studied and documented that the single most important determinant of regulatory compliance is ease of compliance. And that means that we have to do everything we can to explain the rules and to provide tools for businesses and organizations to implement those in a way which demonstrates proper respect for individuals, rather than just a checkbox compliance process. I want people to understand the value proposition, that why doing this is important, and we need to make it really easy. So that figure of hundreds of millions, you know, I have another philosophy that, you know, we spend once at the center uh, and save thousands of businesses, uh, thousands of pounds uh, in compliance costs themselves. If I can create a template document for some regulatory reporting obligation, and that saves them 50 pounds from going to their lawyer, or if I can spend a couple of thousand pounds producing a training module that is used thousands of times and saves people 150 quid going to a consultant for their training, that, that's taking cost out of the economy and improving compliance. I think often in European Union debates, people are disappointed because they expect the GDPR to have fundamentally changed the business models of certain companies. But it was always unlikely to do that. And if that were the case that people wanted to pursue, there are other tools that would need to be looked at as well, whether it's in antitrust and competition policy, online safety. And we're seeing in the broader regulatory review both in the UK, the EU and elsewhere, that these other tools are being looked at. But I think that probably underlies why people feel that sense of disappointment and why they like to see those multi-million pound fines. It's almost like a demonstration of efficacy and change. But I'm not opposed to fines. I think they have a really important role, but they're actually a very inefficient way of affecting change across the economy. They take a long time. You're only touching one business. Uh, you're driving one stake into the ground over one issue of law that requires enormous uh, legal and investigative resource. You look at the time it takes for some of these investigations to take place. It's really important. And I will tell you that I will not hesitate to use fines to the maximum amount I'm, I'm allowed where companies have profited from putting people's data at risk, from harming people. I will not hesitate. We should take the profit out of non-compliance. That's absolutely important. But what we also need to do is for the vast majority of companies who are entrusted with people's personal information, we have to help them to protect it in a way which in an environment where that becomes increasingly difficult. It's a very sophisticated information technology market. We're asking people whose primary business is the provision of healthcare or education or making widgets to actually exercise some quite sophisticated judgments about how they protect the data with which they've been entrusted. This idea of you would be more deliberate in what you investigate. I'd be interested to understand what that actually means in practice. Is it, say, for example, the age-appropriate design code, the, the kids' code, yes. is, that, is that something where you will be deliberate 
Absolutely. what you investigate. Absolutely. If we become aware of non-compliance that is putting children at risk online, then that is absolutely important that we get into that, that we draw some lines in the sand and say that that conduct is not acceptable. Now, if we change that conduct through that intervention, then our mission is accomplished, whether we fine or not. I'm interested in outcomes-based regulation. I'm interested in, in getting the maximum impact of the resources that are entrusted to me for the all of the people of the United Kingdom. But it also, I think, let's go back to really first principles in case some of your listeners are not as informed about this area that um, occupies so much of our, your and my time, Conan. Because I think what people sometimes forget is that the great value of this legislation is that it is universal in its application. It does an enormous amount of work. It covers the entire economy and an infinite variety of human activities involving data transactions. The only way it can do that is by operating at a level of high general principle. And that's fantastic. That sets the guide rails. The downside of that is uncertainty, right? So we have a trade-off. You can have a very prescriptive law that leaves no doubt, like a tax law or something which tells you that you can drive 50 miles an hour, not 45, not 60. Everybody knows what that rule is. Problem is, with the infinite variety of uh, variables in uh, data protection, that law would fill many libraries. Uh, to be very prescriptive about all the instances that you need to regulate. So we need to leave people with some judgment. The law needs to create general principles, and that creates uncertainty. Uncertainty is a cost for business, uh, and that's where my role as a regulator is to provide that certainty with guidance, with commissioners' opinions, and sometimes with court action by pointing out to a company that you have stepped over the line and we're going to get the tribunal to 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 set those parameters. So there's a range of roles that enforcement has. There's a range of roles that a regulator have. So you said there, John, the beauty of the legislation is outcomes-based. It applies to a number of different scenarios, but it does leave a certain amount of uncertainty in interpretation and enforcement. We also have this uncertainty now that the legislation you're talking about is changing. So we have the Data Protection Act and the UK GDPR, which is our essentially the data protection framework within the UK. There's other laws, but we'll forget about those for now. That's the core of, of many of the responsibilities that you and your team are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. But what we've had come back, as I referenced to earlier in the podcast, is the reform of this legislation, the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill. And for those on the line who are less familiar with it, this bill was tabled initially last summer when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister and Nadine Doris was the Digital Secretary, and it's finally come back after rounds of informal consultation. But the bill is back, and it's in Parliament. There's two elements, and I know it's very early in the legislative stages. I accept that there will be an element of caution in what you can and can't say. But there's a couple of elements that I'd like to just investigate with you, John. And the first is about the ICO itself, which... It's going to change name. It's going to change governance. You're going to have a CEO and a chair in the way that you have with other regulators. And there's big changes in how the ICO will interact with government. And this has prompted concerns from civil society groups and others. There's been grumblings about this a little bit over the past year to 18 months when these plans were becoming clear. 
about the independence of the ICO as a data protection authority in the UK. In the press release that came out with the bill last week, you were quoted in it, and it was a very positive quote about the changes in the bill. So are we to take from it that you don't share those concerns that others have expressed around the independence of the ICO being jeopardised by this reform of the legislation? Yeah, I don't. I was very clear with secretaries of state from the first one I worked with who appointed me through to the subsequent ones that you've mentioned and the current secretary of state that my preferred position is to work with government to get the legislation into a place where I'm comfortable about publicly supporting it. That does not make me a cheerleader for government. What it does is it says that I've been able to work with my team and with DCMS and subsequently the SIT officials to get the legislation in a place where we think it, it achieves what Secretary of State described last year in her conference speech as her bottom lines, that it protects the data protection and privacy rights of people of the United Kingdom, it maintains adequacy with the EU, uh, and reduces costs for business. I think it does all those things, so I'm happy to support it. In relation to the independence point, we have worked with governments and there were aspects of the initial proposal that I thought did put our independence as the ICO at risk. We worked through those uh, and I think we've got to a place where I'm perfectly comfortable to stand up in Europe or anywhere else and say the ICO is as independent as any data protection authority in the world. The one area where there has been some criticism, I think, is the requirement for substantial guidance to be signed off by Secretary of State. Now, this uh, really w relates to what is essentially delegated legislation. The point that I was making earlier about the benefit of the legislation, its general principles and universal application, the downside of that being the uncertainty that they create. There is a role for the ICO to create guidance to resolve some of that. So we put our money down, we say, in this particular sector, in this particular industry, here's how we will be applying this law. Now, I don't think it's objectionable for the executive to have a role in saying what the what is, in effect, a lawmaking power of an independent regulator is. So Secretary of State will be able to sign that off and we'll have to table that in Parliament. So that, I think, is an appropriate level of checks and balances that the what is essentially a delegated legislation is placed back before Parliament via the executive. Now, the detractors, the critics that you're mentioning will look at that and say, if Secretary of State has to sign off guidance, how is the uh, ICO independent? I've got an answer for that. There is no capability for Secretary of State or anyone in government to influence how I, as the Information Commissioner or the new corporate structure of ICO will apply the law in a particular given case. And all the guidance is doing is setting out that in advance. So while the Secretary of State may say, I don't think it's appropriate to issue this guidance in this form and at this time or whatever, she or he will have to publish any comments that they give. Those will be publicly available, so there will be parliamentary accountability for that decision. But I will continue to apply the law in the way that I think is appropriate, whether that guidance is published or not. And can I just go back to one point that you made there, and this was prominent in the government's press release, that EU adequacy will be maintained. 
and I guess we need to see a little bit what happens on the other side of the channel. I would agree with you that my expectation would be that where the bill is, it wouldn't cause a fundamental review of the adequacy decision, but we do need to see what the reaction will be in Brussels. And the point you're talking about here is one of those that has been mooted as potentially the most sensitive because the adequacy decision process obviously does have to look at the independence of the regulator. So that's a sort of political cross-channel element that we're talking about. The other point I wanted just to go on to, John, was around the Secretary of State. So I get your point on that particular element around guidance, but there does seem to be, when you look at the bill, quite wide powers for the Secretary of State in other areas. So to take one example, international data transfers, it does seem to be an extension of the role of the Secretary of State, both in extending data transfer frameworks or data transfer mechanisms globally, but also in restricting. There's this Article 49A that I was looking at that where the Secretary of State can prohibit data transfers to other countries, which to me sounds a pretty far-reaching and potentially relatively arbitrary power that the Secretary of State has. I don't think that bears on the independence of the ICO. That's one point. The second point, I think, is that governments have always asserted a right, a sovereign right over the borders and have reserved a right for import or export controls. And this is really no different. It's, there is concern, there may be concerns about the way data is used or processed in a particular jurisdiction that a government may wish to step in and prevent harm to people of the United Kingdom by ensuring that their data is not subjected to this process. We've talked a lot about the framework in which this is operating and it, we've tended to focus more on how this ultimately affects businesses and the private sector. But let's go on to the public sector side of thing, which I noted again, going back to your speech last week and the promotional materials that the ICO has talked about, lots of work you have been doing in dealing with public sector side of your responsibilities. So freedom of information requests, where you've cut down on the backlog there, but also other elements too. There's been this big story in the media, which everyone in the UK will have seen. But for those who are based outside of the UK, the former Secretary of State for Health in the UK, who was the lead during the pandemic, thousands of his WhatsApp messages have been leaked and then published by a leading newspaper in the UK. And some of these are highly sensitive and quite casual conversations between not just ministers, but also senior civil servants within governments. And with the ICO, you have obviously have powers around data protection and also disclosure and transparency in the public sector. And I think last year, if I just quote here, you did a review into private app messaging apps used within government. I think it was Department of Health actually at the time. And the conclusion was it must not result in a lack of transparency and inadequate data security. Now, this sounds like inadequate data security to me. And so I'd just be interested to get your reaction to the, those leaks. But more specific, that broader issue, should we be calling time on government by WhatsApp? This is a really interesting issue, and there's a lot of stuff bound up in it. There are data protection issues, which I think you're tr touching on. There are also machinery of government and transparency issues. So part of my jurisdiction is about administering freedom of information law. Uh, and that is a law that allows people to make requests for information that are held by government. The concern that we set out in the report that we called Behind the Screens was that with non-corporate channels of communication, there is a risk 
that the government record is not complete, that the central elements of the decision-making process are left in personal devices on corporate apps. They may be deleted, they may not find their way into the official record, and that can potentially harm transparency. So what we have recommended is not that those apps be banned, but that government examines those and their use recognises that there is clearly a high demand for them at all levels of government and sets out appropriate policies to ensure that the convenience and efficiency of those apps can still be used without putting the information at risk. The other One of the other elements that we found in the Behind the Screens report was that the communication apps had not all been checked but this, for the security requirements, so we don't know if they were being put at risk, if the data was being put at risk in that way. And that's really important. You can't just have shadow IT growing up without any kind of oversight. So we did urge, and in fact, the case was the same one as has been revealed in the publication of those texts. It came from the same incident. We have urged government to recognize this. Cabinet Office has, in fact, given notice of its intent to issue guidance in the area of non-corporate communication. So we await that with interest as well. We've seen lots going on around what should and shouldn't be on government devices most recently with the debate around what should happen with TikTok, for example. We'll be very interested to see how the guidance on private messaging apps, but also some of those other devices relate to each other. But if we could just move to a slightly different part of the public sector. When I saw you a few weeks ago, John, it was just following days from when you had intervened in the tragic case of Nicola Bully and the disclosures that were made by Lancashire police about some of her private information. And I also note on a slightly separate note that the ICO has also done a lot of work around excessive collection of data from victims in very sensitive cases like rape and serious sexual assault. Obviously, those two are very separate issues, but I, what I was quite interested in understanding from you, firstly, just get your reaction on, on, particularly on the first case with Lancashire Police, but also putting those two together and some of the recent scandals we've seen with the Met in, in London, which is the London Police Force. Is there a wider issue, do you think, in policing in the UK around data protection and treating sensitive data of victims in a careful and sensitive manner? The short answer is yes, I think there is. Uh, I think policing uh, has some significant challenges and there have been some real shocks to public confidence. In the first case that you mentioned, the very sad case of Nicola Bully, it, it, it's not a matter, it's not a, it's not a public debate that I entered lightly. But just for listeners who aren't familiar, a woman went missing whilst walking her dog and it just became a touchstone for the sort of social media TikTok generation who, you know, who are growing up on crime thrillers. And people were really getting in the way of the police investigation, which was a missing persons investigation. And there was all sorts of hurtful and misleading content being posted. Quite a long time into the investigation, police disclosed some details about the missing person, very sensitive information about her experiences and health experiences. and Now, I wouldn't normally have jumped in at that point, but that disclosure elicited responses from the public, of responses of alarm. How can police make the disclosures? Can we trust? And it was when the conversation turned to that, how can we trust police? How can we have confidence in them? But I thought it was really important to reassure the public that there is a framework 
governing police and that they are accountable for these kinds of decisions. The statement that I made was that police are subject to the same laws as everybody else. They are given special exemptions and latitude where a given disclosure is demonstrably necessary for carrying out a law enforcement function or the like. I thought it was important to do that because people were finding it difficult to draw a link between the information they disclosed about that missing person uh, and their efforts to uh, locate her. Uh, And I said that I would be looking into it and we would investigate. So that was, I think, an important intervention because by the time we entered that conversation, I think the, the same day the Home Secretary had expressed her concern about that level of disclosure uh, after we added that information into the public conversation the prime minister also expressed his concern despite the fact that we weren't able to present findings because we hadn't had an opportunity to investigate i thought it was important just to lay out the general framework i'm pleased that you mentioned the the who's under investigation report that we issued last year which was about the experience of people who complained to the police of a rape or serious sexual offence. And we found that a great many people, the majority women, I'll say women, but there are men involved as well, but women who go to police with a complaint that they have been assaulted were finding that the focus of police activity was on their background, was on their mobile phone. They were being asked to sign forms which would allow the police to obtain their counselling records, their health records from schools, from a wide variety of places, which I think contributed to the extraordinarily high rates uh, of uh, victims dropping out of investigations and the extraordinarily low rates of conviction for these offences, which is down about 8%. We started the podcast talking about taking an empathetic approach as a regulator, and my desire to humanise this law and show how it affects people in their lives, not just as an abstract, but here is one that is really tangible for a lot of people. And I had a lot of women get in touch with me, actually, and say, thank you so much for for doing this work. And, um, you know, I... I had my intimate photographs taken from my phone. I have, you know, so th- those kinds of experiences um, uh, were really uh, affecting. Um, and if we can raise the standard, if we can take that one obstacle to women and other victims of um, sexual offending, we can take that one obstacle off the table. Perhaps that 8% clearance rate will climb a few percentage points. There's a whole lot of other work, I think, that police and prosecution services need to do to improve uh, the operation of the justice system and the way that it serves victims. But there's certainly a role for data protection. It's one area that, to be totally frank, I hadn't really considered the role of the ICO until the interventions that the ICO has made. It's certainly something that I don't think is top of mind when people think about you or what they think about the organization and the potential impact that you can have. I think that data protection and privacy is often seen as a more legalistic, dry application of law and those sort of tangible human examples often don't jump out. I think you're right. And it's a shame because data protection and privacy is something that people generally only experience in the negative. They exist in a world in which they have really innate and inherent expectations 
that are so closely tied to their human dignity that they don't question them until they have an experience which shows that those values have not been respected. And then they feel a sense of grievance, a sense of loss. Um, so I think it, it's our role to, to show people that, that these rights are there, that they're important, and that real harms can occur when they're not respected. We've talked a lot about current, we've talked about a lot of stuff that you have done in the past as a regulator in the past what, year to 18 months that you've been in post. Can we now just look ahead and apologies to everyone who is enjoying that, the much more human element of the discussion there. I'm going to take it into a very unhuman realm, which is some of these emerging technologies and emerging policy issues that come along with those technologies. And until Silicon Valley Bank blew up, all anyone in tech was really talking about was generative AI. So chat GPT, the chat box is probably the wrong phrase for it, but the very sophisticated AI powered chat box that people have used on open AI, but also has been integrated into Microsoft and so on and so forth. We are at the very early foothills of what that means for policy, because we still can't fully understand or appreciate all the applications that chat GPT and its successors will be used for. But you are starting to see obvious early debates. So one is around education and whether chat GPT should be banned from homework or whether homework is even a good thing to have anymore in schools. Another is around IP enforcement, about some of the imagery that's used in DALI, which is a comparator to chat GPT, but for imagery. And others around dis and misinformation around the concerns that chat GPT and other generative AI tools aren't necessarily always truthful or accurate in the information that comes out. But one area that hasn't really come out, at least not in what I've seen, is around data protection. It seems a little bit missing from the debate at the moment. And I wondered if you had any views on whether this, in the first instance, provokes any data protection concerns. Because I guess there's a lot, ChatGPT and other generative AI tools are all powered by the information that goes in, which is where the IP enforcement debate comes from. It's about copyrighted material being used to train these algorithms. Presumably there's a similar sort of logic for people's data, their own personal data being used to help train these generative AI tools. And are there problems there? There, there are enormous opportunities. We're only starting now, I think, to understand the potential and the potential applications. And that means we are only starting to anticipate the problems. It's interesting if I just jump for a moment to the first example you gave of education. My parents uh, were expected to use a slide rule. I don't know anyone who knows how to use a slide rule now. And they would take a slide rule into their exams and then calculators came along and there was a debate about whether you should be able to take calculators into your exams. We've had the same with Wikipedia. So these new technologies, they do give us pause. We need to think about these things. In the field of data protection, there's a lot of thinking going on. There is, of course, as you say, there are two ends through which you can view this issue. I don't, I won't pretend to have anticipated all the data protection issues that generative AI will throw up. But there is, as you say, the input data. That's a secondary use of personal information. We don't know whether there will be gins of personal data left inside the models, which can be reduced back out. I haven't heard that problem with ChatGPT, but in the rush to market is where sometimes these risks are realized. So we don't know 
whether there will be leakage um, from the input data uh, uh, out models. Um, second, there are issues about the data sets on which these models are trained, and we do see very significant ethnic and cultural biases. If they're trained on a on a Silicon Valley-based data set of, of people who look very much like you and I, and then the output is going to be skewed. Now, that is of interest to colleagues such as the Equality and Human Rights Commission. It's of interest to people like the Financial Conduct Regulator, and very many others of us are interested in the potential for these data sets, these models to perpetuate discrimination and misallocations of resources based on current societal inequities. So there's all of that. Then there is how the infinite number of use cases for these AI, generative AI product. And I just don't know where they're going. I would not have predicted, and perhaps many of your listeners and you would have, when we started hearing about chat GPT six months ago, that it would be, it would take over search. I, I didn't see that coming, but it, clearly that's where it's heading. But certainly with some of the frailties of the models in terms of the their ability to hardwire discriminatory practices found in input data sets, that can have a result of delivering unfair outcomes to people in particular use cases. So if you use a generative AI to assist you with your allocation of social housing or to identify areas of concern for policing or the distribution of welfare benefits and the like, there is there, there are risks that when you put your personal information in, your name, your postcode, etc., that you'll get a result that you don't understand and that you can't explain that may be based not on explicit prejudice or discrimination, but on a whole bunch of proxies. And the law, again, harking back to our opening comments, the law being a very principle base, says that you're entitled uh, to have your information processed in a way that is fair and accurate. Now, there's a real challenge in interrogating the accuracy of a of an AI-generated decision if what I've heard described as um, designed unpredictability means even the author of the model is unable to explain how you get from my input data to your outcome decision. So yeah, there are significant challenges. I think there's an awful lot of work going on, such as AI impact assessment, ethical conversations. We have a, a collect of digital regulators called the Digital Regulators Cooperation Forum, which is doing quite a lot of work on AI auditing. So I think there are there there is a lot that can be done in terms of ex ante examination of AI models and use cases and ex post regulation as well. And we will be seeing a white paper soon from our government on artificial intelligence. And I think we've also will be seeing the results of the Patrick Valance review which I think will also have some recommendations about how we harness the benefits of this transformative technology in ways that are safe for, for people and that ensure that um, people do get uh, fair and accurate outcomes. I was interested in how you describe there, John, around the education impacts of generative AI and how this is essentially an existing policy concern 
that has somehow become a bit more pressing. There are already digital tools that where we had this live debate. And I think that's the sort of, there's basically three areas of generative AI, well, three types of questions which are posed, I think. That's the first one, existing policy concerns have become more pressing. I think you then have old policy concerns in a new setting. So I think IP enforcement is a little bit like that. IP enforcement is, since the dawn of the internet, IP enforcement is always the first issue almost that goes to court. But all, usually it's about the outputs. It's about people reusing the output of that image, that video, that music. But this time it's more about the input being used into those models, which then obviously influences an output. But ultimately, when Getty are taking legal action against Stability AI, they're worried about the input of their image stock being used, the inputs into this model. So it's the same question, but in a slightly different way. And then we also have the third one, which I think is where we can't really quite get our heads around, which is those totally new policy questions. And I think one that I was thinking about there would be the case of, say, if you are in a virtual world, the interactions with a generative AI avatar and the legal, social and cultural implications of those interactions and how that happens, I think is almost certainly something quite novel compared to where we are now. Which takes me on to the final question here, which is around, we've talked a lot in the past around the metaverse, or I think, I can't quite remember if the ICO used the term immersive technologies. I think there's lots of different, there's XR, there's lots of different ways that people term these things, but essentially we're talking about virtual reality, augmented reality, sometimes it's 2D, but virtual worlds and these types of technologies. And... From a data protection perspective, when we did our research at the end of last year, what came back to us time and time again was, firstly, we're worried about not only the scale of data collection, which would be implied to be higher with these headsets that you're going to be using the whole time, but also the sensitivity, so eye-tracking biometric data. But also with augmented reality, this concern around always-on recording cameras and microphones proliferating in public. Now, I know we're not quite there yet in the technology, but we can already start to see where this might go. And I guess you've been very much in this conversation talking about the opportunities of ChatGPT. We've got to focus on the opportunities first before we start delving into the risks. Is your philosophy and your attitude the same here? Should we let these new technologies go out into the go out into the world and then we work out what the harm is and we respond. Or you said ex ante earlier with regards to AI, do we need to take a more preemptive approach to avoid new harms developing in the first place, specifically around this issue of the metaverse, but I suppose it's a broader regulatory. I don't think there's a hard line between a desire for a precautionary principle and a desire to have an a regulatory environment that is supportive of innovation and allowing people to get benefits of new technologies. We want people, look at what happened in the pandemic. We, we really wanted people to get the benefit of new technology, of new pharmaceuticals, right? Now, the pharmaceutical industry is one of the most heavily ex-ante-regulated industries in the world. Aviation, you cannot just build your own plane, sell tickets to 200 people, and start flying across the Atlantic. There, there are an enormous number of regulations and testing and so on that you have to comply with. We don't have those in the digital sector, yet we do have potentials for quite significant harms. So I do think that the role of a regulator like the ICO 
is to is to identify or help organizations identify those potential harms and to mitigate them. We don't have a precautionary principle in law which says you have to prove uh, that your product is um, not harmful before you take it to market in the same way that we do uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. But we are starting, I think, to be more active in some areas of vulnerability. So the Children's Code, for example, has a whole lot of minimum design features which are intended to ensure that children can get the benefits of online services, digital products, without the risks to their safety and well-being. Things like ensuring that their location data is switched off by default, ensuring that there are rest times that they're not you know, perpetually on, switching off messaging from third parties by default. So there's, we are starting to get to that area of recognizing risk and asking and requiring this to design those in advance. I do think that governments and regulators such as my office have to be ready to, to respond very quickly. And I do think that's something that we haven't done very well in the past. These technologies can burst into the world and be upon us and take us by surprise and take many years for us to understand the implications. And I think that was the case, in fact, with the business models that underlie many of the, um, you know, the social media applications which have become so dominant that these were opportunities missed by governments, missed by regulators. And we have to make sure that we don't miss the next one, whether that be immersive technologies, whether it be generative AI. And that's why we invest in upstream horizon scanning and innovative tech. We are offering services to innovators, an innovation advice service to ensure that they can, at a very low cost, access information about the minimum requirements that are on them and so they don't just blunder forward and put people at risk um, and require an ex-post regulatory response. We were talking at the outset about my regulatory philosophy and you contrasted it, I think, with my colleagues in Europe who are interested in big fines. I would much rather prevent a harm to tens of millions of children than after the fact go out and find the person who caused that harm 10 million pounds. So what does that do for the children? Uh, so if we can put these guardrails and help organizations get the benefit of the technology in ways that are safe and that deliver benefits to society that uh, avoid those risks, I think that is, that's a much higher value regulatory outcome. John, thanks so much for taking the time today. That was a fantastic guide through a whole range of different issues that we bounce between from your overarching philosophy to the bill to some pretty crunchy public sector topics and then a look ahead to some of the emerging issues we're going to see over the next five to ten years. So thanks so much for taking the time today and I'm sure all the listeners really appreciated that. And just for those on the line, as always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of the issues that John and I have been talking about today, you can find our contact details or indeed the contact details for Global Council and for our sectoral teams on the GC website, www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. And for details of the Information Commissioner's Office, please go to ico.org.uk. Thanks very much for joining and see you next week. Bye-bye.